Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second installment of the AgSay Daily Friday podcast. We're so excited you guys are tuning in. To listen to this podcast and previous installments, you can just go to SoundCloud. And we are waiting on our Apple approval, and soon our podcast will be available for download on iTunes. So we're super excited about that. I'm Caitlin. I am your host for the week. I'm the editor and curator for AgSay Daily. And I'm very happy to be here this lovely Friday morning with everyone. So today we're going to do a few updates on last week's story, and then we're going to move to a new story. So last week we talked about Fatula Gulen. He's a Turkish cleric living in Pennsylvania right now. And Turkey is currently requesting that the United States extradite him back to Turkey. We did tell you guys last week that there were 58 boxes of evidence provided to the United States on why Fatula Gulen, or how he was, involved in the coup and why he should be extradited. Turkey has since said that they actually have not provided any evidence to the United States as to how and why Fatula Gulen was involved in the coup and why the United States should extradite him. So that's a pretty big reversal of statements there. Vice President Joe Biden was in Turkey on Wednesday, and he also wrote an op-ed in a Turkish newspaper explaining that the United States would definitely extradite Gulen if evidence was provided that he was part of the coup. So we'll see where that story goes. We'll keep you guys updated. If you'd like to read more on that story, Foreign Policy just wrote a really good article, uh, John Hudson. It's called, Turkey Concedes No Evidence Linking Gulen to Coup Sent to Washington. And that is on our Twitter feed if you want to read that. It's a really good article, explains everything really well. So for this week's story, we're going to talk about Ukraine. We did just publish a few weeks ago an article on our website about Ukraine and what's going on there right now. And there's been some new facts that have been um, reported in the last few weeks, in the last, especially the last few days. And so we thought we'd update you guys on what's happening in Ukraine right now and why it's important for the United States to really pay attention. So our article went over a brief overview or recap of the Ukraine crisis, which I'm going to go over even more briefly right now. So in November 2013, then-president of Ukraine, Viktor Yukonovich, I'm definitely not pronouncing that right, sorry about that, decided to end negotiations to join the European Union. And this sparked widespread protests in Ukraine that finally ousted him in February 2014. So November 2013 to February 2014, it's not a very long time. He fled Kiev, which is the capital city of Ukraine. And the regions that supported him most, which is eastern and southern Ukraine, grew increasingly violent. Russia did intervene in those conflicts. They said they didn't, but it there's overwhelming evidence that they did. And they also annexed Crimea, which is a valuable peninsula in southern Ukraine. It's majority Russian-speaking, and it quote-unquote voted to join Russia in a referendum. This region, though, is part of the sovereign territory of Ukraine. The annexation was met with angry words, but basically no action from the vast majority of the international community. Following the annexation, which was largely free of violence... A small-scale war broke out in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine between pro-Russian Ukrainians and pro-government Ukrainians with the intervention of semi-covert Russian fighters. So in late 2015, late last year, 
Ukraine and Russia signed the Minsk II protocol, which was the second ceasefire. The first was Minsk one, And that required local elections in Donbass, which is still controlled by rebels. Those elections still have not been scheduled. And it doesn't look like they're going to be scheduled really anytime soon. So what I kind of want to talk about today is the humanitarian side of this, but also the military side a little bit. The the humanitarian side has really been ignored by the larger international community. Currently, there's 1.7 million people displaced in, within Ukraine. They're called internally displaced persons, IDPs. And there's 1.4 million refugees in Europe and Russia from Ukraine. There have been two ceasefires, like I said, Minx 1 and 2. Neither one has really worked at all. The Ukrainian government did set up funds to help families, but widowers of separatist fighters killed and their family are not eligible to receive these funds. And people registered as refugees within Ukraine, so the IDPs, are not allowed to vote currently. So basically anyone who has fled eastern Ukraine and is registered as a refugee, which they actually call settlers in Ukraine, which is a derogatory term for refugees, um, they're not eligible for voting. So there are some private citizens stepping up, starting nonprofits, starting food banks, starting soup kitchens, whatever else is needed. But there is a huge humanitarian crisis coming out of this conflict that is largely being ignored in light of other humanitarian crises, which are equally as important, but not more important than this one. Europe and the United States have a huge leverage over Kiev. Right now, Kiev is very weak. Their military is very weak. This is the pro-government part of Ukraine. And so they need supplies. They need the support of the West. And that means that we in the West have leverage over them to make sure there are certain humanitarian demands that are met. And we haven't really tried to do any of that, um, mostly probably because this crisis has been kind of forgotten. And it's really important that we remember this crisis, not only from a humanitarian perspective, but from a security perspective, because these people have to go somewhere. They're not just going to stay where they are. And that's going to bring even more refugees to Europe. If you've been following some of the stories of refugees in Europe, there's um, been some issues getting them resettled and getting them integrated into the communities they're being settled in. And it's really important to note that a lot of refugees are not coming from the Middle East, but are coming from Ukraine and Eastern Europe. So to keep that in mind when we're th thinking really hard about solutions to these problems, you know, there is a security aspect to them. It's not just some person pleading that we make humanitarian efforts. It really is if it helps you to think about a security issue. So a little more about Ukraine. One journalist put it, Ukrainians inherited a legacy of violence. So Ukraine is a fertile, flat borderland between Russia and Europe. It's been conquered over and over again and has rarely been unified in identity or purpose. Until 1991, 
It was never an independent country, divided by conquerors from Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and the Soviet Union until then. The violence that mars the East, coupled with the still fresh wound of the annexation of Crimea by Russia, has become the backdrop over which Ukraine plays out its daily tasks. The country has never been a pretty political place. Many of its policymakers and leaders are characterized by backroom deals, corruption, and negligence of the greater good. National identity is tenuous at best, which explains some of the disharmonious narratives coming from within the nation itself over the past few years. There is a major divide in Ukraine between Kiev and the rest of the country. Kiev is the capital city. It's the largest city. It sits in the center of the nation. It's divided by a river. It kind of represents the longing to belong to the West, be industrialized, be privileged. It's a place of long history, selfish ambition, political corruption. It promises wealth for few and disappointment for many. And it houses a whole generation now of people who do not remember the Soviet Union and therefore do not fear, like their neighbors, their northern neighbors' ambition. The rest of Ukraine lives a very different life. They live on dirt roads and in homes with no electricity. Many speak Russian and remember the times under communist Soviet rule. A different set of values and identities seem to create almost two nations within one, the urban and the rural. While this divide exists in almost every nation, it is so severe in Ukraine that we now find ourselves wondering whether it is one nation after all. So the government in Kiev and Western Ukraine, it has to decide between two broad options, to improve the governance and economy of the still intact regions of Ukraine, or to put resources towards regaining the Donbass region. Indecision or the middle path has been the plan so far, but it is causing both options to fail. If Ukraine wants to join the West, including potentially going forward in its desire to join NATO and the EU, it has huge issues to tackle, including corruption, security policies, and economic development. In tackling those things, it may have to limit the resources it puts towards the East, essentially reorganizing into a more decentralized form of governance. This conflict has made one thing clear. Ukraine's military is not effective. It's repeatedly failed to act in the face of necessary action, and when it has acted, it has not been decisively victorious. The lack of security forces has led to the rise of effective but largely uncontrollable militias. So guys, militias are fighting on the front lines. They're funded by groups, though, that don't have the public's authorization to use violence. So they're funded by political parties, they're funded by oligarchs, they're funded by companies and private industry, and that makes them out of the control and out of the reach of the government and therefore out of the reach of the voting populace. This sets a very dangerous kind of narrative in who's going to take care of the security situation in Ukraine. And we in the West have the power to impact that and we really haven't done anything. And if we want to make sure that Ukraine doesn't become a place where you know, militias, where private industry, where the rich are fighting wars on behalf of their government and therefore making the decisions over the heads of the voting public, then we're going to have to step in and do something about it. We're going to have to do something more than rhetoric. We're going to have to do something more than forget about the conflict until someone dies or some plane crashes. It's really important that we remember this. So... My closing thoughts on this is that 
we tend to forget things that are important in lieu of things that are urgent. I understand that. We all do it. As a country, we do it very well. But Ukraine is important. It may not be seem urgent right now, especially compared to Syria and Iraq, Northern Africa, Israel, Afghanistan. But it really is important to remember it and to make sure that we hold our policymakers accountable for the decisions they're making in regards to Ukraine and Crimea and Russia. That means we have to be well informed on the issues. So I hope this little nugget of information has helped you guys understand what's going on there better. And if you guys have any more questions about it, please send them in. We got this question that I was talking about today from a reader who read our Ukraine article. So thank you for that. And please go read our article. It's on agsaydaily.com. If you're not already subscribed, you can go to our website and subscribe to the newsletter. And we will see you guys next week. Have a nice weekend, everyone.